This episode of the Reality Check Podcast is brought to you by my book, How to Get Your Shit Together, the last self-help book you will ever need. In my personal, realistic, and down-to-earth style, I share what it takes to survive the impact of mental illness and childhood trauma. To go from a place of barely surviving to passionately thriving. I draw from my lived experience with mental illness, childhood trauma, and the recovery process, providing practical advice, tips, and techniques for overcoming anxiety, defeating depression, moving on from trauma, getting organized, finding meaning, and following your dreams. How to get your shit together has the potential to turn your life around, to improve your mental state, functionality, and overall health. It's out now as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook. And you can grab yourself a copy via the link in the show notes. The Reality Check Podcast is brought to you by Kamigo, the world's first patented technological device that provides quick relief for anxiety, stress, and panic attacks by combining three scientifically proven methods that activate the parasympathetic nervous system and calm the body. The Kamigo provides adaptive breathing regulation. It measures the depth of your breath and provides you with feedback to help slow down your breathing and thus calm you down. It does this through multisensory stimulation, which acts as a form of present state awareness and grounding. And it also employs aromatherapy, adding a calming scent to provide therapeutic relief for rapid relaxation. I use the Kamigo daily at the start of my meditation sessions to help calm me down and focus me. And I also use it at night as a way to de-stress, relax, and move into a peaceful night's sleep. Reality Check Podcast listeners will receive $30 off their order with the coupon code ZACKPPHILLIPS or via the link in the show notes. Alright, so it's been a long time between episodes and I guess <laughs> now's the time for my uh, annual lamentation about Christmas time. If you've been following me for a while, you could probably <laughs> look back over the posts that come around this time in the previous years and you'll hear me saying basically the same thing. Why? Because for some people, myself included, Christmas time is tough. It's not that I don't like the people or the celebration or the festivities or whatever's going on. It's that it's all too much. It's an overwhelm. It's oof, it's lots, you know. There's just so many things on. Every work party, social gatherings, friends, family, different family, other side of the family, your partner's family. If you're doing a sport, they've got to break up. You know, just constant. And it's not just one thing. It's over and over and over again. I see it in myself. I see it in my family, in my kids. And it's just this marathon of obligation. You know, at least that's how I feel about it when I'm in a bad state or the preemptive anxiety leading up to it. It's like, oh my God, I have to do this and then I have to do that and then I have to do this. And that's sort of how my mind is. It's like, I have to, because I feel or I fear that I won't be able to maintain it. But then when it's happening, I'm fine. 
So I always sort of, or at least now I'm learning. And I guess the difference between this talk and my previous year's talks is I'm getting better, despite my life getting busier. The resilience is growing. I'm doing far more, but I'm able to handle far more, which is pretty cool. Nonetheless, I would like to say if you're struggling, if it's an if it's a bit of an issue, if you feel like you're not liking this season, I get it. I totally get it. This <laughs> Christmas isn't easy. It's it's a lot, and then you no know, New Year's, and then you're back into the work thing, and like here we go again. So look, yes, it is. It is what it is. But nonetheless, we persist. We continue. I want to suggest if you are struggling, do what I do and make some plans. You know, first of all, communicate. Let people know that you struggle and that if you take actions like leaving the party early or taking a break or whatever that we'll go into, that's what is happening. It's not an offense. You're not upset at them. It's just you managing yourself in the same way if you had a physical injury, you might need to take breaks if you were walking long distances, for example. In this sense, you need to take breaks due to your mental health to recover. So what I do is plan it. I express why I'm going to walk away, and I do. I take time off. I take little breaks. I set, go and set a timer, listen to a particular song that goes for about six minutes, just calm breathing, laying on the ground, literally just present state awareness, connecting to my body, connecting to the song, deep breathing, and just recovering, then coming back to the party. You know, and most of the time, people don't even realize I've gone. I just go, do my thing, come back, and I'm recovered. I also plan ahead. You know, make sure I know when I'm getting there, when I'm going to leave, so I'm not sort of surprised by the duration. Uh, And just sort of planning ahead. If I look at, you know, I've got a calendar up on my wall that tells me what I'm doing and when, so I can plan ahead. It's like, okay, I've got Christmas party X over here, Christmas party Y over there, there's a gap in between. So on those days of gaps, I'm going to take some rests. I'm going to do the self-care. It's planning ahead. And don't get me wrong, like like I've said, this is a long-term process. It's something that has taken quite some time to deal with. So I guess what I'm saying is, is there are ways that you can process and manage. But I guess the expectation that you're just going to be fine is maybe not realistic. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're connecting with me, Accept that it might be a bit of a challenge and take actions to protect yourself. That's what I'm doing. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. I don't want to dwell on this too much because like I said, I speak about this every year and it's getting a bit old in my mind, but look, I get it. It's hard, particularly for people with anxiety, more introverted, more stimulus overwhelmed. I get it. Do things that will protect yourself. Learn yourself, protect yourself. Um, If you haven't already, Grab a copy of my book, How to Get Your Shit Together. I'm going to put a chapter at the end of this talk that sort of goes into this um, this sort of topic a little bit more um, that will sort of help you. But yeah, grab a copy. It's out as a paperback, ebook, and audio. I narrate the audio. So grab it, read it, a bunch of chapters up for free. The basic the basic concept is, is learn yourself, try a bunch of stuff, and eventually you'll figure out things that will help you, well, get your shit together. I I learned from a variety of different self-help books, therapy sessions, talks, courses, all of this sort of stuff. And my advice is to basically do the Bruce Lee of mental health, you know, take a little bit, experiment, take what works, discard what doesn't, and add a little bit of your own. So that's sort of what I'm suggesting you do as well. Look at my stuff, try what works, discard what doesn't, experiment, add a bit of your own. And that's the way that you'll be able to, well, get your shit together. <laughs> 
what I really wanted to talk about today is the idea of trauma trauma cycles or breaking the cycle. Um, and more specifically, that it's impossible to fully break the cycle. So breaking the cycle means like, let's say you've been abused or neglected or your parents are, are addicts or you know something happened in your past. And then you look back and it happened in your parents' past and then it happened back in your grandparents' past and so on and so forth. Trauma, abuse, neglect, addiction, all of these things are passed down. It's a cycle. It happened to you and then you pass it on. Now, I am all for breaking the cycle. It is possible to break cycles. You recognize the problem and you take action to address it. I.e., if you are abused, if you're beaten, you go, okay, that's stopping with me. Now, it is possible to break the cycle, but it is very hard. And I think it's not really easy to do it cleanly, or at least not in my experience. And I'm going to go into that. So, once again, like, my, my, my father was an addict, a drug dealer. There was issues of neglect. I faced abuse, not at his hands, but it, in the people that were in his house and in a whole variety of other situations that I've spoken of prior. It's hard. So the the narratives, the modeling, the behaviors that I saw growing up is like, that's my model for how to be a father. The father figure that I had is like, well, I face an issue with my kids and the default response before my cognitive brain comes in is oftentimes their response, which is obviously inappropriate and traumatic. I recognize that, but it's there. So I've had to teach myself, okay, if my son acts up, well, don't yell, don't hit. Don't neglect, don't abuse, don't ignore, don't turn to drugs, right? I know what not to do, but I'm sort of learning what to do. And that's why it's quite hard to break cleanly, because I know what not to do. I've spoken about what not to do. I know which direction not to go. But where do I go, right? So I recognize in myself that I am taking the right actions as in not doing what my dad did or the negative father figures in my life did, but I'm not quite sure where to go. So that's one problem. The second problem is, is that all of those negative behaviors are all by degree, right? So let's say you were screamed at and beaten and you might go, okay, well, I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to beat, but you might get angry and just sort of yell, right? You're not screaming directly at them, but you're yelling. You're articulating your displeasure verbally. That's still passing on something, right? Let's say your parents are an addict, they're addicted to something, and you use those same drugs to inebriate yourself from time to time. How much is appropriate to do in front of your kids? Is any amount appropriate? Well, compared to your parents, you might be doing it literally 1%, but is that 1% still too much? What if you can't maintain functionality in life without doing that 1%, right? What if your parents were overtly and inappropriately sexual or abusive down that path or maybe put you into a parental role that you shouldn't have been placed in? Insert any example here. And you cut 99.9% of that, but some slips through that you don't see because the amount that you are exposed to is so extreme that you cut it all the way down because you're like, yeah, well, clearly that's you know abuse. Clearly that is wrong but it still made you up. 
Now, obviously, I'm talking from a place of introspective anxiety. I like to analyze and introspect upon myself. And I look at my kids' well-being and upbringing and how they are acting and their ability to connect their friends like they're thriving. But I can't help but question, am I still passing on shit? And the fact is, I know I am. It might be different to what I was to what I was given. It might be the same. It might be a different by degree. But the reality is, is if you're around people, you pass stuff on to them. That is the truth. So all of the neurosis, the anxiety that I've dealt with in dealing with the upbringing that I had, well, they see that. They see my behaviors from day to day. You can't escape that. That's impossible, right? So what I'm suggesting is, is whilst it is possible to break the cycle, whilst it is possible to escape that path, some still will get through or the response to the trauma still gets through. That's one issue. The second issue of why it can be hard to break the trauma cycle is the fact that those around me aren't necessarily doing the work that I'm doing or aren't necessarily as aware of it or aren't necessarily as caring or don't really put the effort in. There's something blocking them. They're not ready. Whatever. So in the family, there is an issue with help, with connection, with a whole variety of different things that led to the stuff that happened to me. Communication. stuff, All the stuff I'm trying to, to work with, to, to, to address with my kids. But the wider family doesn't have that same focus. So my kids are still exposed to the same things that I was exposed to. They, the other members of the family, still act similarly to how they acted when I was young. Thus, I can break the cycle and sort of try and shield them from that, you know, sort of intervene as the strong parental adult when they start going down the same level of bullshit that was given to me as a child. I can step in and say, hey, like, let's not talk like that. Or, hey, like, we need to have a conversation in private away from my kids about what you're saying and exactly what that means. Because, you know, perhaps you're unaware of what you're saying. Perhaps you don't realize the impact, but I'm here to fucking tell you that's not great. But the point is, is if I was to cut my kids off from my family completely, that would obviously be completely negatively detrimental. If I was to not intervene, then they're getting exposed to the same sort of stuff I was exposed to. If I do intervene, then I'm intervening and I'm causing a disruption of the genuine relationship between them. Once again, either way, I'm still intervening. I'm still causing a disruption and I get it. Like that's whole my, my job as a parent is to mold and intervene and change and sort of protect. But nonetheless, that cycle will still be somewhat passed on to my kids. They will still get exposure. I still have, you know, I have my, my now six-year-old saying to me, he's like, hey, dad, why did this person say this? Or what's going on here? Like, he's already questioning. I can see myself in him, you know, but at least he has me to bounce that questions of with the benefits of hindsight and being like, hey, well, yes, this is what happens. Yes, sometimes people speak like that. Yes, perhaps they mean this. Yes, you know, if you feel this way, you know, it's really cool. Um, I've been saying to him, you know, like I said at the start, if you ever are overwhelmed at a party, a gathering, and you need some alone time, take it. You know, come and get me and say, hey, dad, I just need some time to myself. And he has. He had a birthday party recently and he came up to me. He's like, hey, dad, I need you some alone time. I'm like, right, cool. You know, he just felt he was having a great time. Heaps of people loving it. But he just felt a bit overwhelmed. He's like, everyone's saying my name. Everyone wants me. I'm like, cool. Let's take a little break. Took him to a secluded area. We just sat and chill. I'm like, hey, do you want some alone time with me? 
or without me. And he said, I want alone time with you. I'm like, all right. So we sat down in silence and just chilled for about five minutes. And after five minutes, he's like, yeah, getting back into it. And he just raced back inside and was back to playing. Fucking awesome. I loved that. Right. It's showing that some of what is working or some of what I hope to be working is working. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I, I injured my foot doing rock climbing and I fell off the wall and my son was there and I was in pain and he's like, daddy, do some calm breathing. I'm like, you are right. You know, he, it's coming back to me, which is great. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a positive mirror. I'm just, I don't know. I'm aware that things get passed on, but all you can do is your best. And there's a nuance here. You know, there's, there's, there's this sort of thing that, oh, it's hard. You know, it's hard to make sure that you're doing your best and, you know, you fall into those old patterns. And, you know, when I feel like when I'm triggered, when I'm struggling, that's when this sort of what I'm trying to impose or what I'm trying to do falls away a bit and you go back to those base resources and I fall back into some of the patterns that I was raised on. But now I know it's like, okay, I'm aware of that. So I apologize and I explain it. I'm like, hey, you know, yesterday I was laying on the couch for ages. Sometimes I struggle and I explain my mental health struggles to my kids. It's not ideal. Ideally, I'd like to be strong enough. But the reality is, is I have these issues. The reality is they might have those issues. Thus, this is how we address it. I would like to read you a poem called Scrying Thoughts. It's my... It was an expression of these thoughts that come past and these sort of responses to myself, to, to, to my past and sort of how I feel trapped in, in my past, how I feel like I perpetuate these cycles. I wrote it ages ago and like, like I talk about, I use writing as therapy and it helps to express it, but perhaps this poem can express some of what I'm feeling. Anyway, scrying thoughts. Bong hit, smoke eyes See life, father's eyes Different pain, new disguise Hot take, fresh lies Core aspects, I despise Diverted focused, stoned highs Scrying thoughts, child cries Look close, perpetual demise Broken dreams, sharp knives Self-worth Cliched rhymes. I wrote that poem when I was stoned. I wrote it because I felt in that moment that I was my father. I heard my kid crying, one of my children crying, and I was inebriated and I was out of it. I was on the couch and I'm like, oh shit. In that moment, I am him. I was him. And it hurt. And it was like a wake-up call. And it was also an understanding of what he was going through. Because in that moment, I empathized with him. I'm like, fuck me. If he was feeling what I'm feeling right now, no wonder. No wonder he struggled. Because here's the thing. We talk about generational trauma. What happened to him to make him him? Right? And what could have he been like had if he had me? as a father, to raise him? What would have he been like moving forward? Now, this isn't excusing his behaviours or his actions or anything like that, but 
it helped me to have some solace. You know, I found out that he faced trauma and abuse and neglect, and he didn't have the supports that I had. So whilst he wasn't anything near what I needed or what I hoped or what I wanted from a father, he still was enough to get me to where I am now. I would have liked more. And I would have liked to be able to be more for my kids. But all I can be is myself. So without further ado, I will leave you with that post with the part from the book, How to Get Your Shit Together. But before I go, I want to let you know I have a YouTube channel up. I'll put a link in the show notes to my YouTube channel. It is basically just going to be my poetry shorts, an image with me reading my poems. So if you're keen on my poetry, if you think that'll be good, please subscribe. It'll really help. Anyway, here's the chapter from How to Get Your Shit Together. And yeah, have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Enjoy the holiday season. I wish you well. And do some stuff to protect your mental state. You'll get through it. Cheers. Guard your mental state at all costs. Putting yourself first is not selfish. Quite the opposite. You must put your happiness and health first before you can help anyone else. Simon Sinek A successful life starts with a good mental state. What one person defines as successful will be different to another. However, regardless of what each of us wants from our life, our mental state is the common denominator. It's the base that we operate from. In order to be a good mum, an elite athlete, a successful business person, a talented artist, or even just to survive until the next day, your mental state is key. By taking action to put yourself first, you're ensuring that you're in the best position to succeed. Putting yourself first is not selfish. Anytime somebody talks about putting themselves first, they can come across as selfish. So before proceeding any further, I really want to drive home the point of why you must first look after yourself before moving on to helping other people. You can't be as good a parent, sibling, friend, employee, boss, or anything else if you're emotionally drained, compromised, or suffering from a mental affliction. The better you are, the better you can help others. Most people are empathetic, and as such, there's a real tendency to want to help others with their problems. So we take action without realistic thought towards our own well-being and end up compromising ourselves to help the other person. This is not a bad thing to do. In fact, many would consider it a kind of noble sacrifice. However, it's not realistically a sustainable course of action over the long term. A balance needs to be made. In my role as a parent, there are some hard musts that I need to ensure are met. Adequate food, clothing, water, shelter and safety are prioritised over everything else. In order to provide these things for my son, I would do almost anything. However, beyond providing these core musts, the decision must be made to choose one activity over another becomes significantly murkier. For example, if I have a spare hour on a weekend, should I choose to go to the gym or take my son to a play centre? Presuming I can't do both, my decision depends on my mental state. For me, exercising daily is one of the best antidepressants available. It keeps me sane. Thus my ability to provide those musts for my son may be compromised if I don't regularly exercise.
If my depression flares out of control, I may not be able to provide the care that my son really needs. Realistically, he can forgo one trip to the play centre, but he can't forgo dinner. It sucks, but it's a compromise that has to be made. What's more, if I'm in a bad place, I'll not be able to properly focus on the events happening at the play centre anyway. In order to be a focused, present and attentive father, I need to look after myself in my own way. That could mean taking him for a jog in the pusher as a compromise of exercise as well as baby time. If necessary, I could of course push through the mental affliction and work more if necessary, but I couldn't sustain that forever. Eventually I would break. This is why it's important that I take preventative actions to best guard my mental state. This concept can be further explored by the example of a friend going through some kind of crisis in their life. I'll always try to help them, of course, but the kind of help that I'll provide to them will be dependent on my mental state. If I'm in a good place, I'll feel more comfortable getting more directly involved compared to if I'm in a bad place. It's important to recognise that my level of care stays the same, but I know my limits. If directly helping them would cause me to have a breakdown, I don't. I will offer referrals, advice, a chat, or simply shared sympathies. I can't help them if I need help myself. A great analogy is one of a life-saving at a pool. You should only jump in if you're a competent swimmer, have the appropriate equipment on, are sober, and are ready to perform. Because realistically, if you're not in this state, you would probably drown along with the person you're attempting to save. Not only do you need to be in a good place to be able to help other people, but it's imperative that you place the importance on yourself as a matter of priority. You, more than anyone, has to ensure that your needs are met. Only you are in a position to know what you need, and you are the one that will be directly impacted by the circumstances of your life. I'm not saying to use people, to take more than you need, or to ignore the needs of others. Rather, still be you. Just be aware of your limitations. Realise that at different times you are capable of doing different things, and act accordingly. You will perform best when you're at your best. Self-esteem is also a factor. Some selfless people are like that because they believe themselves to be worthless. That is, that they are somehow worth less than other people. That their lives, concerns or issues are less important or significant than those of other people. If this is you, please realise that you are just as much of a human as everyone else. Regardless of your past actions, or what has happened to you, you are not at fault for the actions of others when you are a child. You should consider yourself at least equal to everybody else. Take action. Say the following out loud. I will put myself first, because by putting myself first, I'm ensuring that I'll be able to help those that I care about to the best of my ability. Unless you're in a good place yourself, you can't act. I know that I'm sounding like a broken record, but it is vital that this is understood. If you sacrifice yourself attempting to save someone else, you will both be lost. Even if the person recovers, you may not. Or at least not in time to help someone else in need. How to guard your mental state. There are two main avenues that you can take to best guard your mental state. The first is adding more good things to your life, and the second is cutting the bad things from your life. Of course, what helps or hinders you will be different for everyone, and may even change for you over time. But by acknowledging the impact that different events, people, places, or circumstances have on your mental state, you can develop a plan and act accordingly. Always move towards the positive, 
and away from the negative. Take action. For the next month, take a daily journal with the following headings on each day. Positive impact and negative impact. Every day, you are to write a minimum of one item in each category. Include any event, person, place or circumstances that impacted your mental state, regardless of how small or large the impact was. Specify the detail down to the tone of voice used, a particular word, a type of food, a time of day, a song or an advert. Note down anything that causes a shift in your mental state either way. At the end of the month, get two A4 pages with the following titles. Positive impacts and negative impacts, and copy your entries across, noting down any repeat entries with an extra dash after the entry. Once complete, these sheets will serve as a good starting point to seeing which things are impacting your mental state, and will help you to guard it. Once you know what things impact you, you then need to develop an awareness of your current mental state. For some people, this level of self-awareness will come naturally, but for others, it may be more challenging. Due to the events of my past, I suffer from dissociation. Basically, this means that I sometimes struggle to connect with myself, and I won't realise the extent of my anxiety or depression levels. It is as if one part of my mental state is blocked from the other parts. Despite this lack of awareness, I'm still impacted by mental afflictions. I'll be acting anxious or depressed, but not aware of it. It's almost as if I'm on autopilot, unaware of how I'm feeling. If you can relate to these feelings of a lack of connection with yourself or reality, complete the following take action, as well as consider looking into the concept of dissociation by talking to a qualified therapist. Take action. In the same journal as the prior take action, each morning, noon and night, take note of your current mental state. Out of 10, rank yourself on the following criteria, with 1 being the lowest possible and 10 being the highest possible. What is your focus level out of 10? Your happiness level out of 10? What are your energy levels out of 10? And what are your motivation levels out of 10? Don't get too caught up on what constitutes a 3 or a 7 or anything like that. Just attempt the exercise. The goal of this activity is to get you into the habit of checking in with your mental state on a regular basis. The better you are at determining your mental state, the better you will be at judging if you're in a position to take a particular action. Guarding your mental state musts. 1. Cut the negative people from your life. If somebody is constantly getting you down, or is always in a bad place themselves, and wants to, even unintentionally, bring you down with them, end that relationship at least in the capacity that it currently stands. Of course, this gets tricky when the person is a close family member, but for most of those relationships as well, my advice still holds. Some family members are simply toxic. Others, whilst well-intentioned, may still impact you negatively. In those cases, limit contact with them as much as possible and only see them when you know you can handle it. If your ability to cope changes, end contact, and reschedule a catch-up at a later stage when you're back in a good headspace. Should your elderly mother live with you or in a retirement home? Should you put your sister up in your house until she gets a job? Should you pop into your grandparents' house because you happen to be driving close by? Who knows? It all depends on how it would impact your current mental state. The same is true for work colleagues and people doing sport and recreational activities with you. If there are people who cause you mental duress, take steps to address it. Can you be transferred? Are there alternative arrangements that can be made? 
But before you begin cutting everyone, I want to highlight a couple of things. Firstly, do your best not to burn bridges. You don't need to announce what you're doing or explain why you're doing it to them or anyone. This is not a formal breakup. Simply just stop making as much contact with the person. Be civil and calm in your interactions. Realise that there may come a time when you want to rekindle a relationship, and if you've burnt bridges by telling them exactly why they are toxic, you may have ruined the opportunity. People can and do change over time. Secondly, before you start cutting people from your life, make sure you sleep on it. This will help you to determine if your decision to cut them is based on a heightened emotional state or the result of careful deliberation. Finally, it is worth considering the idea that the issue in the relationship could be coming from a problem inside of you. If you are having a problem with many different people across many different parts of your life at the same time, you could be the common denominator. You certainly could be at a toxic workplace, have a terrible romantic relationship as well as issues with your friendship circle, but there is also a possibility that the problem could be coming from you. I would strongly suggest talking to a qualified therapist prior to cutting people to ensure that you're working through all of your own personal issues at the same time. Prioritise mental health over money. When I was working full-time, I would make sure to bank my sick leave, wanting instead to use it as mental health leave. When this ran out, I would still take the time off that I needed to recover, surrendering that day's pay. Thankfully, I've always been frugal with money, so I could afford to miss that day of work here or there. That being said, there have been times when I haven't worked for months on end, literally. This choice took a significant toll on my lifestyle, but the trade-off was worth it. To put it bluntly, I'm still alive. There were times when work stress combined with personal factors were causing me to fall into deep periods of depression. These were highlighted with episodes of self-harm and contemplation of suicide. I chose my mental state over money. You should too. There is no point having a large bank account or a new gadget if you are too depressed to enjoy it or the process of acquiring it causes you to question your continued existence. I've taken this concept a step further. I've realised that I'm not capable of long-term, full-time work. I'm just not built for it. I get overwhelmed with responsibilities, stress, and the pressure of needing to be on every day without rest. I've now moved on to a more casual approach to employment. This new approach has me performing a variety of different activities, like writing, coaching, replacement teaching, and eBay selling. Now I can choose when and how much I want to work. Truth being told, I'm on less than half of my old full-time income, but I'm infinitely happier. Trading money for time and freedom was one of the best decisions that I've ever made. Make doing what you love a daily priority. I love practicing my martial art, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as well as exercising daily. These activities have consistently been the best form of antidepressant that I've ever come across. I know that they'll boost my mental state for the day and I'll be better off because of it. I make certain to schedule those activities into my day as a matter of first priority. This is a preventative action, taken to guarantee that I'm in the best place possible mentally. Prioritise the things that benefit your mental state the most. Give yourself the time to read each day, walk your dog, pluck your eyebrows, have a long phone call to a loved one, or play the guitar. Whatever it is for you, make sure it happens daily. The positive feelings will carry over and begin to compound. Change plans when your mental state changes. 
If you've made some plans in a good mental state, but something happens that puts you in a bad place, feel free to change them. It's tempting to push through, of course, but that may not be the right move. You may have a breakdown. Consider rescheduling it to a later date or altering the plans to better suit your new mental state. I've planned on attending a party, only to cancel and to catch up one-on-one at a later date. That way, I'm not overwhelmed by the party, but I can still socialise with my friends. Frequently asked questions. I don't think that it's selfish to put myself first by guarding my mental state, but I'm concerned that others may. How do I let them know what I'm doing and why? Wherever possible, I find it best to use open and honest communication, letting people know who I really am and what I need out of a relationship. Most people understand that I have certain needs and simply get it, just like they would if I explained a physical condition to them. If somebody does not understand and is unwilling to accommodate me and my needs, they may be somebody that I will consider cutting from my life. I'm concerned that my work will judge me for taking so many sick days. In the past, I've chosen to push through the mental affliction rather than taking time off to recover. Companies want their employees to stay. Recruitment, selection and training costs are huge and the process of integrating a new employee into the team can be very time consuming. It is often a better financial choice to accommodate the specific needs of employees than to continually cycle through them. You could consider negotiating part-time employment, job sharing, working from home, or other arrangements specific to your needs. If that doesn't work, you may need to change to a more understanding workplace or consider a career change. I know that sounds extreme, but if you are significantly struggling, what's the alternative? Would your boss prefer you to take a sick day here and there or to leave the workplace entirely? Summary. If you are not in a good place mentally, you'll be unable to help others to accomplish your goals or to enjoy your life. You need to take the necessary steps to protect your mental state as a matter of first priority. So that was a chapter of how to get your shit together. You can grab a copy as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Link to that and everything else I've talked about in the show notes. Have a great day.